Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. There sure are a lot of suspicious objects flying around our skies lately. Exactly one week ago, it was that Chinese spy balloon. This afternoon, it's what the Pentagon calls a high altitude object shot down by an F-22 fighter jet about 10 miles off the northern coast of Alaska near the town of Dead Horse. But what is that object? Who does it belong to? And what was it doing up there? Plus, of course, it's Super Bowl weekend. Bob Costas will be here tonight with what he's most excited about. Americans are expected to bet $16 billion on this game. Is this harmless fun or a new national addiction? Bob Costas will give us all the scoop on the big game. And Congressman George Santos is still at it. This time he's lying about Senator Kirsten Sinema, according to her. If you've lost track, we'll bring you the full compilation of Santos's deceptions from just this week and what his colleagues are now saying about him. But let's start with the mysterious object shot out of the sky over Alaska this afternoon. Joining me is Fareed Zakaria, host of Fareed Zakaria GPS. Fareed, great to have you here with us tonight. So let's talk about what we know about this strange, mysterious object. We know it was flying at 40,000 feet, which they say posed a threat to civilian airplanes. Uh, It does not appear to have any surveillance equipment on it. It's about the size of a small car. It was unmanned, did not appear to be self-maneuvering, meaning that it was subject to the winds. It was much less predictable. So, Fareed, do you want to hazard a guess as to what this thing is? Allison, sometimes in life it's best to be honest and say, I don't know. Um, What we do know is the balloon was flying at about 60,000 feet, so much, much higher. Uh, This one, as you say, is at about 40,000 feet which means the Pentagon is exactly right. It does interfere with civilian flights. I I would have wondered if it could possibly be a drone that is usually too high for a drone. Uh, Commercial drones fly at about 400 feet above, uh, but they can go as far up as I think 20,000. Military drones can go get up to 30,000. This one is at 40,000, but... The Pentagon says it had no surveillance equipment on it. Uh, it also said uh, that it burst on impact. It, 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 it shattered on, on impact, which doesn't suggest it's a balloon. So you know, if we want to play this game of it's, it's something that, that, that shatters on impact, does mm-hmm. not have surveillance equipment, is going higher than most drones, lower than these spy balloons, You got me. (laughs) As my grandfather used to say, animal, vegetable, or mineral. And we don't know. Um, So so the national uh, security spokesman said today they don't know if it's state-owned or corporate-owned or privately-owned. Any idea how they will figure that out? If they get the debris, and the problem apparently is that it's also in 
you know, Alaska where it's very cold and, and, and there's Dark. a lot of ice. Uh, but once they get the debris, I'm pretty sure they'll be able to figure that out. Uh, it, it, I'm, I'm surprised that they were able to, uh, to determine that it had no surveillance equipment that quickly. It means they probably got a good look at it. Um, so I, I, I would suspect that we would find out pretty quickly. Um, it's you know, one of the reasons why you, you're sort of in these rushes to, to make judgments. One has to be careful about getting the story right, uh, is that it really, there, you know, there's, there's a lot of possibilities. It could easily be a commercial. Uh, it could be, uh, you know, a military thing. But again, not having surveillance equipment to me was the most interesting piece of that of that list of things you you read. And I mean, also, they seem to be able to quickly deduce a week ago that it was a Chinese spy balloon. And so the fact that they don't know if it's from China, don't even know if it's state owned, is curious. Um, today, our Pentagon correspondent Oren Lieberman asked um, if the rash- what the rationale was to shoot it down so quickly if it was perhaps under political pressure. So here's that moment. And was the decision to shoot it down before it entered too far into the U.S. airspace, the Pentagon bowing to political pressure from the Hill? Uh, Look, again, we're going to judge each of these objects on its own merits. It entered into U.S. airspace on February 9th. Uh, We we sent up aircraft to assess what it was. The decision was made that it posed a a reasonable threat to civilian air traffic. The president uh, gave the order to take it down, and we took it down. What do you think, Fareed? Do you think there was any political calculation there? Well, there's always a political calculation at some level, but I, I, I suspect that this is a, a case where, the, you know, the judgment of, of, of being dangerous for civil, civilian aircraft uh, is probably the most important thing. Uh, w- one piece of this that's worth noting is that uh, the administration did brief the Canadians on this, and the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, essentially accepted and supported the rationale. So... Uh, you know, it seems as though to me that this is a reasonable decision based on safety. Uh, a little puzzling that they know so little about it, but um, I'm sure we'll know more as, as time passes. You just had a piece in The Washington Post saying that the next balloon type crisis will be harder to deflate. So what do you mean by that? Well, let's take this one that we're just talking about. One of the things that I think was in some of the reporting was that uh, one of the reporters asked, did you try to communicate with China to ask them, is this this something coming out of China? And the response uh, that the administration, I think it was Admiral Kirby gave, was, well, we're not talking to China because they didn't answer our last phone call. You know, which sounds a little um, like, you know, this is a kind of we're, we're in a very bad moment with China. And the danger here is it's a very powerful country. We have lots of issues with it. Uh, there's issues relating to Taiwan. There's issues relating to China's enormous military buildup. It now has more ICBM launchers than the United States. That's not nuclear missiles. That's places you can put nuclear missiles. But it tells you that China is, by the Pentagon's own estimation, going to triple the number of nuclear weapons it has. Um, and we have no military-to-military dialogue. We have no arms control treaties. We have no uh, hotline between Beijing and Washington. And, and so when something like this happens, it isn't easy to quickly clear it up and clarify and say, you know, is this, is this something of yours? And to me, that's a very dangerous place for us to be. 
It, it reminds me when you look at history uh, of where the United States and the Soviet Union were in the 1950s, uh, before arms control, before the superpower summits, before regular confidence building measures. You know, there's an enormous amount of mistrust, suspicion, no good lines of communication. And what that means is one of these crises could go bad, right? It could, it could escalate. Um, and, and there isn't en enough information. There could be a miscalculation. And that's a very dangerous place to be. With Remember, China is one of the three, you know, it's a nuclear-armed, essentially, superpower. Fareed, great to get your perspective on all of this. Thanks so much for being here. Pleasure. Here with me in the studio is Republican strategist Doug High, also former Democratic Congressman Mondaire Jones, and Chris Whipple, author of The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. Gentlemen, great to have you here with me on a Friday night. Um, Chris, let's talk about this. You've spent sure. a lot of time reporting on the Biden yeah. White House. Do you think that this was a tough decision this afternoon for President Biden to make? Well, without minimizing um, what Fareed was just talking about, obviously the China-U.S. relationship is fraught. It's, it's very serious. But having said that, this was almost the perfect ending to a really great week for Joe Biden. And what I mean by that is that he was able, by shooting this object down, he was able to do what he was criticized for not doing in the case of the Chinese balloon by his uh, Republican uh, opponents. And um, I think that it's, again, he's, um, while this might have been politically motivated, I think he's perfectly insulated from that charge because the military recommended that he shoot it down. This is not Afghanistan where he overruled Mark Milley and Lloyd Austin and did his own thing. So I think he's insulated from that. But it comes on top of, you know, a, the best speech of his presidency, in my view, the State of the Union, in which he absolutely owned the zealots in the GOP. And do you uh, think that was planned? Do you think that he built that in because he knew there'd be that well, back and forth? Well, I think some of it was planned. But, but I think he, in the moment, he was terrific. He, he just owned them. And he followed that by going to Florida and toying with p poor Rick Scott, who has become the GOP version of the Chinese balloon, you know, lingering over the landscape while Joe Biden shoots at him and smiling. Um, so it's, it's, it's a great week for Joe Biden, I think. Really interesting. Um, Congressman, I wouldn't say that by shooting this down, he has silenced the Republican critics. No. What is happening, I think, is they're now casting about for, ooh, did, was the last one too, too long? And was this one too soon? Here is Congressman Mike Waltz of the Foreign Affairs Committee today on this response. I'm trying to understand why this much smaller, uh, by their own admission, much less capable uh, balloon with a much smaller payload was deemed such a threat that the other one wasn't. And it can't just be the altitude. Uh, and to your point on, you know, what our red line should be, I guarantee you, if we put an object over Beijing or over some of their s sensitive sites at 40 to 60,000 feet for days, collecting sensitive intelligence, they would take action. Uh, we need to take reciprocal action and again, make that clear up front. Want the president to shoot it down or not? Look, when you, when you are dealing with people operating in bad faith, you are always damned if you do and damned if you don't. I'm actually concerned, as, as are you, with the fact that we don't know more information about this object that was shot down. Would it have made more sense to wait another day or so 
to assess the origins of this, whether it was state-owned, as we heard from Fareed, or whether it was corporate-owned. How would they have done that if while it's flying around in the sky? Yeah, the same way they did it with respect to the Chinese spy balloon, right? Which which was able to, to I think they were able to identify that more quickly. I mean, I think that just by eyeballing it, they were able to figure out what that was. This one seems more mysterious. I, I think I think it was more complicated than just eyeballing it. I mean, to, to determine the whether it was from China or some other nation. I mean, this is the problem with not allowing the intelligence community and the U.S. military to do its job, to make assessments, but rather to jump to conclusions based on political instincts and criticize, it, it, depending on the party of the person occupying the White House. But you think that that's what the Republicans are doing or that Biden jumped, that Biden acted I too quickly? I think all of the Republicans who said, how could he let this happen? He should have shot this down immediately over the state of Montana, for example, were people who were not making informed analyses. Got it. Doug. Yeah, so I used to work for Richard Burr, who was the um, Senate Intel Committee chair. And the one thing that he always impressed on me, on his colleagues, on staff, um, was that you listen to the intelligence first. And what we know at this point, and this is exactly what Fareed was talking about, is we still have more questions than we have answers. On the balloon, still, um, on this new object, we know it's not a balloon, but we don't know what kind of object it is. So we need to determine what this was, where it came from, why it was there, and, and then why the decision-making process went through that. As we figure those things out, as we get those answers, that'll tell us more about whether Biden did the right thing, the wrong thing, um, should have let it go further, didn't, didn't act fast enough, all these things that you know, he's, he's being criticized for. But we've got to get these answers first and foremost. Well, yes. I mean, one of the things that he's being criticized for is the lack of transparency. Senator Murkowski of Alaska, who's quite concerned about things flying over her home state, said today, you know, we're really going to press the White House for more transparency. I think the White House doesn't know yet. I mean, mm-hmm. are they whole, is, is there a lack of transparency from this White House or are they waiting to get information before sharing it with the American public? I think they were perfectly transparent in this case. I mean, from, in this one today, in, in this, it was this afternoon, yeah, this, we're already reporting. Them. In this case, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think they've told us what they know. I think John Kirby was pretty clear about what we know and what we don't know. And and you know, you can second guess this thing seven ways to Sunday, but I thought this was really professionally and smoothly handled. And I think it's it's also Biden's first decision on Jeff Zients's watch. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote a book about the White House Chiefs of Staff and, and uh, my latest book on the Biden White House, The Fight of His Life, <clears throat> spells out just how badly things can go when a president switches White House chiefs in Fair midstream. Yeah. But so far, this is a tribute to Zeitz um, and I think also to a foreign policy and national security team that is finally really hitting its stride. Um, it wasn't always pretty in Afghanistan, yeah. but with Ukraine, they did everything right. And in this case, I don't know how they could have handled this latest episode any better. Very quickly, 10 well, seconds. One indication that the White House has been operating in good faith is that even after a classified briefing, Mitt Romney came out and said the Biden administration did the right thing with respect to the, the spy balloon yep. from China. I'm sure they appreciated that actually from the senator. Thank you all very much. This is, of course, Super Bowl weekend. The big question, apart from who wins is will President Biden sit down for a Super Bowl interview? Every hour there's a different answer on this. We'll tell you about the back and forth that has been going on between the White House and Fox tonight. We're gonna talk about that and so much more, of course, the big game with Bob Costas, next.
It's Super Bowl weekend. The Kansas City Chiefs and some other team will face off in Phoenix on Sunday night at 6.30 Eastern. My Philly cousins are screaming at the screen right now. Uh, And for all of you who are just there for the halftime show, this year it will be Rihanna. More on that later. But this game will be exciting for many reasons, and one of them is it will be the first time the Super Bowl will have two starting black quarterbacks, Jalen Hurts for the Philadelphia Eagles and Patrick Mahomes for the Kansas City Chiefs. They talked about that earlier this week. I think it's historic. It's historic, and I think it's a foundation for what's to come. Um, so many kids out there, so many kids that, you know, they may tell them to change their position or do whatever it is, but... You know, it, it can be done. It can be done. And this is a historic moment. I, I know it'll be a show. It'll be a fun one. It's a historic moment. Um, and to be a part of it with two historic football teams. Um, and uh, we, we it, so many people laid the foundation before us. And uh, to be playing with a guy like Jalen, who I know is doing it the right way, um, it's going to be a special moment that I hope lives on forever. All right. Joining me now is CNN contributor Bob Costas. Bob, great to have you here. And before mm-hmm. we get to that specific um, historic moment. Yeah. Just just tell us what is most exciting to you about this upcoming game. Well, first of all, I see you're wearing your Chiefs red, mm-hmm. just as Jake Tapper was in green and a full Eagles jersey mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Michael Smirconish will mimic that tomorrow morning. <laughs> Meanwhile, Wolf Blitzer doesn't care at all because the Bills aren't in it. But it isn't like people at CNN don't have their allegiances. Uh, the game shapes up as, as a good one. Uh, the odds makers say point and a half, two points in favor of the Eagles. The Eagles have had a great season. They've lost only one game, including the playoffs. And generally speaking, it's believed that the Eagles have, not by a lot, but by an observable amount, the better overall team. But Mahomes, with all due respects to J- respect to Jalen Hurts, Patrick Mahomes is a gigantic talent, and it would seem to me that if the Chiefs win the game, Mahomes has to have a big game, whereas Hurts can just manage the game, not make too many mistakes, and have a good game, and that scenario could shape up for the Eagles winning. Hmm. My husband grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, so we are outfitted with all of the regalia at our house. And I get it. Yeah, I know you do. So I get it. let's talk about these two brothers, okay? The Kelsey brothers, um, Jason mm-hmm. and Travis. They are the first brothers ever to compete against each other in the Super Bowl. I mean, what is their mother feeding them to, that has made them so fantastic? Well, apparently it's a real football family. The dad as well. I remember interviewing Travis Kelsey some years ago uh, for Sunday Night Football on NBC and quoting his dad as saying, there's no stopping a Kelsey boy. So so these these guys were not sitting around dreaming of being astronomers or something, which is not to say they aren't bright. But these these are rough and tumble kids from the beginning. Jason is the elder of the two at 35. Travis is probably the better player uh, headed for the Hall of Fame, one of the great tight ends in NFL history. He's 33 years old. They will not be on the field at the same time since Jason is a center, plays offense, and Travis is a tight end for the Chiefs. So it won't be as if they're hitting each other or tackling each other. But from what we hear from the family, that was often the case in the living room or in the backyard (laughs) when they were running into each other. Um, Here's what their mom has to say. By the way, by the way, Allison, it's it's worth noting. Yes, they're the first brothers to play against each other in the Super Bowl. But John Harbaugh of the Ravens and Jim Harbaugh, then the coach of the San Francisco 49ers, met as head coaches in an epic Super Bowl that went right down to the wire and the Ravens prevailed. And it was really a touching 
scene when the two of them met because John was exultant and Jim was uh, downtrodden because they had lost a very tough game, but they embraced and said to each other, I love you. Hmm. And that is really a difficult thing. The two head coaches, not just players, but the two head coaches, think of their parents and their family in that situation. Well, we might see that situation again at the end of this game. Uh, Here's what Mm -hmm. their mom said about who she'll be rooting for. It's going to be easy. You know, I have to stand and scream the entire game. Uh, They're both on offense, so every time somebody has a ball, I'll be clapping, and every time somebody gets a touchdown, I'll be thrilled. (laughs) It's easy. (laughs) So she's rooting for a score of like 50 to 45 so that both offenses excel and the defenses don't. That's exactly right. Um, Okay, so now let's talk about the historic nature of this, these two black quarterbacks. And I was just reading today Mm -hmm. about – how hard that has been. I mean, how much discrimination there has been, particularly to achieve the quarterback position. Yeah, it goes back generations now, but there was a time when it really made news. A player named Marlon Briscoe, who had also been a wide receiver, played quarterback for the Denver Broncos at some point in the late 60s, early 70s. Warren Moon came out of the Canadian League and went on to a Hall of Fame career with Houston, but it really was a barrier. Uh, And it was pretty clear that the prejudice was that quarterback was a thinking man's position, a white man's position. To a lesser extent, the same thing was true of middle linebacker in old school defenses. The middle linebacker was the guy who called out defensive signals, and that was shut off from for black players for a very long time. But the barrier for black quarterbacks has come down. Doug Williams won a Super Bowl for Washington in the 1980s, and it was a cause for celebration. It was very, very significant. Uh, There have been many black quarterbacks in the Super Bowl. Donovan McNabb for Philadelphia, Steve McNair for Tennessee played in the Super Bowl, Cam Newton uh, for Carolina played in the Super Bowl, Colin Kaepernick played in the Super Bowl for San Francisco in the game I just mentioned. They didn't win it, but Doug Williams did win it. Russell Wilson did win it for Seattle. Patrick Mahomes is trying to win it for the second time for Kansas City. So while this is noteworthy, It is no longer that noteworthy. There are a dozen or more black quarterbacks in the NFL now, ranging from stars to journeymen and everything in between. The bigger barrier, not that it hasn't been broken, but it hasn't been fully resolved, is for the head coach's position. And it's interesting to note that way back when, in 2007, Tony Dungy, then the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts, met Lovey Smith, the head coach of the Chicago Bears, in the Super Bowl. So that's nearly two decades ago. So two black head coaches actually met in the Super Bowl way before two black quarterbacks met in the Super Bowl. But I think the quarterbacks playing in the Super Bowl is as much coincidental now as it is consequential because black quarterbacks are no longer an oddity and there doesn't appear to be much of a barrier to a black man playing quarterback in the NFL if he has the ability. Great context, Bob Costas, as always. Thanks so much. Really fun to talk to you tonight. And what about Biden on Fox okay. or right, not on Fox? All right, tell me. What do you What's think? What's up should, with that? Should he do it? You know, really, I, I think he should for this reason. If they had offered up, as they almost certainly would, Brett Baer or Martha McCallum or Shannon Bream, who are not associated with the rather extreme and harsh opinion-type programs on Fox, then it would be to Biden's benefit to do it and reach some 100 million 
people. Now what's being bandied about, and as of half an hour ago, the answer was no, nothing at all. But there's an outlet that I'd never heard of, and you probably hadn't either, because it hasn't gotten much traction, called Fox Soul, which is a streaming service that's designed to uh, appeal or uh, geared toward a black audience. And so apparently at one point, the Biden administration said, yeah, we'll talk with two hosts from Fox Soul. And Fox apparently said, yeah, that's okay too. And now the White House has backed away. If I were advising Joe Biden, and he hasn't called me, but if I were advising Joe Biden, I would tell him, look, Fox and every conservative outlet, right-wing talk radio, the internet, they will all call cowardice on you, Hmm. fair or not. Oh, he was afraid to come on Fox. Hmm. He was afraid to face the questions. You know, back in the day, whether it was a Republican or Democrat, it was really more like, hey, it's Super Bowl Sunday. It was kind of a softball interview, unless, you know, what team did you root for growing up? Did you play football? What What do you like to eat on Super Bowl Sunday? That's the way it usually was, unless there was some issue right in front of us, like when Barack Obama said he might not let, if he had a son, might not let him play because of the concussion concerns, or Donald Trump, when he said, get those SOBs off the field, that was just a few months before NBC had a Super Bowl involving the Eagles, by the way, in early 2018. And he refused to be interviewed. Trump refused to be interviewed by Lester Holt. And Lester Holt is a down the middle, fair minded journalist. So So he broke that tradition. Make of all this what you will. Yeah, no, I hear you. That's right. um, Yeah, there was just so much back and forth. I don't I don't know anymore who's kiboshing it, but it doesn't sound at the moment as though President Biden is going to sit down. Bob, I have to let you go. Thank you very much. Great to talk to you as always. Thank you, Allison. Okay. Have a great time this weekend. Have a good weekend. You too. Uh, More than 50 million Americans will bet money on this year's Super Bowl. Next, we talked to one woman who was never interested in sports until she started betting. Then she got a little too interested. That's next. This Super Bowl weekend, a lot of money is on the line. Americans are expected to bet $16 billion on the game. For the first time ever, the Super Bowl will be played in a state with legalized sports betting, which means you can place bets on the Chiefs or the Eagles from just feet where they're playing in Arizona. Joining me now is someone who learned about the highs and lows of sports gambling herself. New York Times reporter Rebecca Ruiz. Rebecca, great to have you here. So as I understand it, you had no interest in professional sports whatsoever until you started betting on them, and then you were very interested. So what happened? Well, it's fascinating because I was interested as a journalist. My interest was strictly professional, but I was disinterested in that I was dispassionate. I had no horse in the race. I had no emotional connection to sports or to gambling. And in order to better understand our subject matter, in order to say we want to explain this well to readers and this phenomenon across the country that has really taken it by storm in a really short amount of time, I wanted to see what the experience of these apps was like and what some of these offers and the experience of taking advantage of them and playing and using these platforms was like. And I found at a a really striking pace that it was all consuming. I went from being a, a dispassionate observer on the sidelines to being someone who was rabidly tuned in, toggling from game to game, watching games by myself, 
stepping up out of my seat and screaming. Um, it was quite this is fascinating to me because I start from the same place that you do and can't imagine that I would get that invested. But somehow when you're betting money, you do. You describe, um, okay, so basically you were betting anywhere from, I think, 10 bucks to $900 on some of these games. And you describe being on a three-hour flight during which you basically got itchy because you couldn't check the scores of two baseball teams who you weren't really interested in. I mean, do you think that you sort of developed a, I mean, this was affecting you physically. Do you think that you developed sort of an addiction to this? It was disconcerting, I will say. And it was really striking in that it came over me so rapidly. I would also clarify that that really significant amount of money, that largest bet of mine, the $900, was promoted by an entry level offer. It was not an amount of money. I was dis. It was not an amount of money I would have ordinarily put on the line, but I was incentivized to do so and to go to that big amount by some of these rather tantalizing promotions that offer you refunds, but often in the form of site credit, which has been marketed as risk free, but certainly the industry has acknowledged can carry an inherent amount of risk. Mm-hmm. And I'm I mean, speaking to addiction experts. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, there really, there really can be this, this concept called telescoping in which somebody can get really into something really quickly. Absolutely. I mean, it lights up the same pleasure centers of the brain that some drugs do. It's, it's, you know, gambling is an addiction. And it sounds like what you're describing as all of the physical reactions that you had. So ultimately, Rebecca, did you end up winning or losing money? I wound up winning overall on every platform. Um, it, it was striking though, however, I mean, it really, the amount of time that I put in, the amount of energy that I put in, it was quite the experience. Uh, over 10 days in a very disciplined fashion in which I, as a very controlled individual who had strictly professional interest, began to really feel a marked change in myself, which was really, really interesting to observe. It is really interesting. It's also, of course, a cautionary tale. Rebecca, stay with us because our guests may have some questions for you as well. I want to bring back our panel. We have Doug High, Mondaire Jones, and also CNN senior data correspondent Harry Enton joins the conversation. So, Harry, I had no idea how much money. More than 50 million Americans are expected to bet on this year's Super Bowl. That's a 61 percent increase from last year. So what's going on? Yeah, what is going on? I mean, the fact is that we have an addicted country at this particular point in my my mind. And, you know, one thing that I've noticed here is everyone on this panel seems to have no idea who's actually playing in this game. And everyone's like, oh, we're not fans of this of the, of the NFL. I'm a huge NFL fan. And so I'm coming in with a little bit I of... I know who's playing. Yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah, you know who's playing. Saying. You know who's playing. Okay. I mean, you, I do too, sort of. Sort of, sort of. But I'm here with a little reality check, give you an understanding of, you know, who's actually favored in this game so we can all walk okay. away from here with an understanding. It's the Eagles are slightly favored over the Kansas City Chiefs. They're favored by a point and a half in this particular football game. Uh, And, you know, this is something that I think is important to point out because the game is going to be so close. There are going to be a lot of people who bet on the Eagles who think that they're favorite, but they're actually going to lose out, right? You know, Rebecca might be someone who made money, but there are a lot of people who lose money on these platforms. A lot of people who are addicted. You know, there are six million people in this country who are gambling addicts at this particular point. So you're not a fan of these sports betting sites? 
I am not a fan of these sports betting sites. I, I, I'm of the belief that while there are certainly some people who, you know, can make money, there are a lot of people who lose a lot of money. And I'm not just talking, you know, five, six hundred dollars. I'm talking fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars. Absolutely. I mean, it's a real addiction. Rebecca, I don't remember if it was in your piece or where I read it. Maybe your piece. But basically, gambling is the invisible addiction. You know, with with somebody being an alcoholic or a drug addict, people see the wear and tear on them and then they stage an intervention, God willing. With gambling... You can be doing it right next to your family. You can be doing it secretly. And then suddenly you've lost your house. Well, hopefully your family's intervening in that situation, too. They might not know. The point is they make it so easy on your phone to do it. I don't see how you distinguish it from people going to a casino, right? Are we going to shut down casinos? I think people should be allowed to do what they want to do in this context and not have the government sort of overreach. Well, the Supreme Court is what did... In 2018, the Supreme Court changed the, basically, laws to, to legalize it in more places. And that's when you've seen this tremendous spike in how much money Americans are spending on these things. Yeah, look, you know, Rebecca's, Rebecca's story ultimately goes to a sentence that we've all said in our lives at one point or another, whether it's on sports or something else. Care to make it interesting? <laughs> and that, that may be the loser buys dinner. That may be a sports bet, maybe something else. But the interest is what we're there for. And that's, that's where you get it caught up in those pleasure centers and, and all that. I can tell you, I learned my lesson, fortunately, very young. 1992, Atlantic City, uh, June 20th, I remember the date specifically, because I was seeing Frank Sinatra yeah. at the Sands, and I decided I was a big shot and I was going to play craps. Uh-oh. I lost 400 hours in less than an hour, and I said, we're good. That's great, Doug. That means that you don't have a terribly addictive personality. Sure. If you can walk away, right? Well, if you saw the number of Frank Sinatra songs I had on my phone, okay. you might <laughs> okay, not that, agree with that. That's yes. a different kind of addiction. <laughs> um, but in terms of the numbers, they are staggering. Do you have some that you're going well, to lay I mean, out on us? I mean, look, I, I think the fact is, you know, we put up the slide a little bit earlier that 33 states, mm-hmm. 33 states, the majority of states now have it so that you can legally bet on this football game. And this, to me, is everything, right? Which is, this is a story in the making over the last five, six, seven years whereby, you know, it used to be that gambling was something that took place, you know, sort of in the shadows. You made it with your bookie. You kept, shh, quiet, quiet, quiet. Now, all of a sudden... Look at this. Yeah. Look how easy online gambling has made things. 30 million American adults plan to wager online or at a retail sports book or with a bookie. And then there's an additional... That's up, by the way, that's up 66% just from last year. That's exactly right. The amount of people who are gambling this particular year is going to top 50 million. That is up. We were just uh, just north of 30 million last year. It's an explosion. You know, I'm interested in following trends. Normally when we talk, it's political trends. But this is a trend that is changing every day. In America, people are really feeling this. And guess what? We're talking about it right now. So it's we can, something. We could have the same conversation on another type of gambling that isn't necessarily looked down on. That's lotteries. Yes, you know, states absolutely. are basically saying to themselves, we're leaving money on the table if we don't have a lottery. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Rebecca, thank you very much for sharing your story. All right, more accusations of lying by George Santos. We're going to tell you what one of his colleagues is saying about him next. Truth challenged New York Republican Congressman George Santos accused of a new lie today, this one by a colleague. You'll recall, of course, that Senator Mitt Romney called Santos out on the floor, the House floor, before the State of the Union, saying you don't belong here. Well, Santos had this to say about it on Newsmax last night. 
Kirsten Cinema, as she was walking by the senator from Arizona, she said something to the effects of hanging their buddy or something like that. I said, thank you, thank you, uh, Madam Senator. She was very polite, very kind-hearted, as, as I've learned to, to, to see her. Uh, she's a good person, unlike Mr. Romney, who thinks he's above it all and is in a whole, whole almighty white horse trying to talk to us down on morality. All right, well, um, Senator Cinema's office tells CNN, this is a lie. <laughs> and it's just the latest in a string of problems for Santos this week. Back with me to discuss uh, Doug Hive on Derek Jones and Harry Enton. What's so funny, Harry? I mean, he's a, 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 how long has he been in Congress for? What is it, like a month? It seems like he's telling a lie every single day. So, you know, I, it's just so ridiculous. Uh, it would, you know, the sad thing is he's not actually serving the people of the 3rd District in the way that he should be serving which is why it shouldn't be surprising that his favorable rating there among his constituents is just 7%. And I can tell you, I study a lot of polls, and when more Americans... Is it seven seven people or percent? I I think 7% of voters may be pathological liars. Uh, But look, the fact is, when your favorable rating is lower than the percentage of Americans who believe we faked the moon landing, which is 10%, I can tell you your favorable rating is quite low. Um, I just like that he was like, you know, Senator Cinema is a wonderful person. She's such a good person. She says something really nice. He's, she's like, he's lying. Like, even the compliment didn't get her to say he's not lying. So here's just the week in George Santos, okay? Um, I mean, and we only have two days because we don't have all, all day lit people. So he, on Tuesday, Santos expected to face House ethics inquiry. Uh, Senator Romney told him, you don't belong here at the State of the Union. The FEC ordered Santos to formally declare his 2024 candidacy or disavow his recent fundraising. On Thursday, the 2017, charges of theft for bad checks to these Amish dog breeders came to light. And then later, Senator Cinema's office denied that they had that friendly exchange. Back to the dog breeders for a second. Um, So there were all of these checks. He said his checkbook was stolen. Well, now, some of these dog breeders are coming out and saying, oh, no, I recognize that guy. He's the one that came and passed a bad check to me, and he drove off with four puppies that I had. I worry that he's going to be so uh, known for lying that we're just going to become numb to it as we get deeper into this congressional term. I'm glad the House Ethics Committee is doing an investigation. I used to serve on the House Ethics Committee. Um, I am hopeful that that will result, culminate in a, a vote to expel him, which requires two thirds. I think you, you, you might you may well get two thirds uh, at this point in a bipartisan vote to expel this guy. But, you know, Kevin McCarthy still got his own political considerations. By the way, I'm so glad this guy wasn't able to attend the, the classified briefing on China. I mean, he has a connection to the cousin of a Russian oligarch. Like, we still don't know who was funding this guy's campaign. He's like a Manchurian candidate. Um, Very quickly, Doug, before I let you comment, uh, this just tonight, Aaron Burnett interviewed the Washington Post reporter who went to speak to these Amish dog breeders about him. And here's what he said. We did drive through and meet some of the farmers who so that we could show them his picture, show them the checks that we thought that they had received and they could actively identify for us, yes, this person did promise us money. He took the puppies that we had bred, and he cheated us. Yeah, these are not victimless crimes. They're not victimless crimes, and they're, they're so bizarre and things that we wouldn't expect to hear, not just in politics, but this would be a weird story regardless. By the way, Amish Dog Breeders is my band name, um, <laughs> incidentally. Uh, but there's a reality that I think people lose sight of, and it comes down to that two-thirds vote in the House. When you're elected a member of Congress, you essentially have an unshakable two-year contract of your job. 
And unless you quit or two-thirds of your colleagues say you're out of here, you're, you're not going anywhere. And the last two times that this has been done, uh, it's been done twice since 1980, uh, it's been for members who have been convicted of bribery and racketeering and other things. Not accused, not bizarre lie stories, convicted of bribery. So that's how high the bar is on this. So Santos not only is not incentivized to resign, in fact, he's getting paid maybe for the first time in a while, uh, it, it's clear that he's going to stay there as long as he can until he's kicked out. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much. It's been a busy few weeks when it comes to stories in the animal kingdom, as you know, if you've been watching our program, and certainly for owls. We'll explain next. Ever heard the story of the wise owl that went to the library? Turns out it's true. Take a look at this owl, which got into the library at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia, this week, hanging out in the rafters there. Library staff called a master falconer to safely capture the owl. The bird appeared healthy, so the school officials ultimately opened the doors and let it fly away. Now, here in New York City, the Eurasian eagle owl named Flacco that escaped from the Central Park Zoo last week is still on the loose tonight. Zookeepers almost nabbed him yesterday. As we see in this photo, tweeted out by Manhattan Bird Alert, officials lured him to a trap in the park using a white lab rat inside the cage as bait, but he flew off before they could grab him. All right, another mysterious object in the sky shot down over Alaska today. What is it? That's next. President Biden ordering the U.S. military to take down another high-altitude object that was hovering over the U.S. We're told it was flying about 40,000 feet, making it a threat to commercial airplanes. This coming less than a week after the U.S. shot down that Chinese spy balloon. I want to bring in CNN national security reporter Natasha Bertrand, military analyst and retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton, and safety analyst David Susi. He's a former FAA safety inspector. Great to have all of you. Natasha, just tell us what your latest reporting is on what happened today. Yeah, Allison, this was a big surprise by U.S. officials today. White House official John Kirby, he came to the podium and he kind of went through all of his talking points. And then in the middle of the briefing, he kind of sprung on everyone that this had happened. And essentially what had happened was off the coast of Alaska, just on Thursday night, there was an object that was spotted. And it was unclear what that object actually was, but it was flying at a very concerning altitude, around 40,000 feet, just at that top end of what civilian aircraft normally fly at. And so it was deemed potentially risky risky to civilian aircraft. And so what the military did was they continued to monitor it. And then on Friday, they briefed President Biden on it. And President Biden did ultimately give the order to shoot it down because it was not seen as able to maneuver by itself. And it was pretty much at the mercy of the winds. There was no uh, surveillance equipment that was detected on this object. And so it was not deemed to be a national security risk, but it was deemed to be potentially dangerous to civilian aircraft. And so the U.S. really did not feel like it 
had any other choice but to take it down. And so around 1.45 p.m. today is when we saw them actually send up those fighter jets and actually use the same kind of missile that was used just last week for that Chinese spy balloon to take it down. Now, we still don't know where this object came from or what it even is. It is uh, a lot smaller than the Chinese spy balloon, only the size of about a small car as opposed to the payload of that Chinese spy balloon being about the size of three buses. So it is is very small. But now what we're going to see is the recovery effort. This apparently landed on solid ice just about 10 miles uh, north off the coast of Alaska. And the recovery effort has already begun. And the next step is it's going to be taken to an FBI lab for further analysis, Allison. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Colonel Layton, let's talk about all of the details there that Natasha brought us. It was flying at 40,000 feet. It Uh, did not appear to have any surveillance equipment. It's about the size of a small car. It was unmanned. It did not appear to be self-maneuvering. In other words, as she said, it was at the mercy of the winds. What do you think it is? Well, Allison, that's, uh, of course, the $64,000 question at the moment. I mean, it could very well be a weather balloon, uh, but... uh, It's not a balloon, right? I mean, it's it's not described as a balloon. Yeah, we don't know that exactly, uh, you know, right now, and I'm not sure if Natasha has had any other information on, uh, you know, what they're what they're saying. But it definitely is some kind of uh, aerial vehicle that uh, you know is is up there. But it could be, you know, some kind of a measurement uh, system, measurement uh, uh, device. It could be some, it, you know, may even though they say it doesn't have the same kind of uh, equipment that the balloon, the Chinese uh, surveillance balloon had, uh, there's still a possibility that it could have collected information. What's interesting is this particular object was flying over Prudhoe Bay, which is, of course, a major oil field for the U.S., and uh, there could be some economic interest in deciding, you know, exactly what this is, maybe making some geologic measurements, uh, doing those kinds of things. So it's it's hard to say exactly what it is right now, uh, but uh, they're definitely interested in something that the U.S. has, I would believe. And uh, it could be, you know, from a variety of different places, China, Russia, are all possibilities at this point. Hmm. David, it was flying at uh, roughly 40,000 feet. So how dangerous mm-hmm. was that to commercial airlines? Well, again, until we know what it is, it's hard to assess that risk. And in an abundance of caution, they they shot it out of the air. And I think that was a good decision. But uh, is it definitely a lighter than air object? Uh, I wouldn't describe it as a balloon yet because it was round, which means it's a super high pressure balloon. Usually if it's a weather balloon, it'll have more of a teardrop type shape. So uh, I'm not sure quite what it was, but if anything la- that size got into one of the engines of an airplane, it wouldn't bring it down. It's not like it would rip off a wing or anything like that. But if it got into the engine, it most definitely would shut down that engine. But I don't understand, David. It's the size of a car. If, it, if an airplane yeah. hits something the size of, the car, of a car midair, why wouldn't it rip off a wing? Well, it, because of its structure, because it's lighter than air, Allison, that means that it's of, of a really fine fabric or that it's a light object. So I'm presuming that that would be that. But again, yeah, who knows what it could do to an airplane when it hits, but I don't think it would cause any structural damage. Airplanes are made to go through the air at you know, five or 600 miles an hour and not cause any damages. And they're, they're made to withstand geese and ducks and anything of that size and even flocks of geese and ducks. So without any structural damage to the airplane. So I really don't think that that was a high risk of happening, but I do think it would have caused a problem with the engine and probably shut down an engine should it go through the engine now. Um, David, if you don't mind, I'm going to co-opt one of your questions that you had for Colonel Layton, because I think it's a good one. David wanted to know, 
Why did it take such a powerful, expensive missile to take something like this down if it was lighter than air? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Allison and David. The uh, the problem is is that we don't have weapon systems that are as cheap or cheaper than these aerial objects. Uh, so, uh, you know, the balloon uh, from the Chinese, uh, you know, who knows exactly how much that costs, but it's, you know, certainly less than an AIM-9 Sidewinder uh, missile and certainly less than an F-22. Uh, the problem that you have is that you don't have aircraft that can fly as high as the Chinese balloon, and you don't have aircraft that can really, on a routine basis, go after these kinds of uh, events uh, in rapid succession. So this is something that we're going to have to really think about when it comes to protecting our airspace. We're going to have to find a way to more cheaply uh, down these uh, or at least neutralize uh, these devices or these these aerial objects uh, when they come into our airspace like these two have. Yeah, particularly if they're going to happen once a week. Um, Natasha, you have exclusive new reporting on new information about the Chinese spy balloon from a week ago. What have you learned? Yeah, Allison. So we've learned that the U.S. just within the last year actually developed a very specific method for tracking these Chinese spy balloons based on the very particular signals that these balloons emit. Essentially, what happened was early on in the Biden administration, another one of these Chinese spy balloons transited the continental U.S. and it was detected by its signals. And the Biden administration, the intelligence community, looked at those signals and said, I wonder where these have popped up before, kind of ran those signals through the intelligence holding and saw that not only had they discovered this very particular kind of uh, these very particular uh, signatures that these balloons emit, but also that they have been able now to track where they've popped up in the past. So in that sense, they were able to see that about three of these balloons had actually passed over the United States uh, during the Trump administration, and they had gone undetected at the time. But the bigger picture now is that they have this method that is allowing them to track these balloons in real time, essentially across the world. And as we know, the U.S. has determined that this is a major fleet of balloons that is operating, really, or has operated over 40 countries across five continents. And this is a key distinction, I think, from this object that we saw today, where the U.S. didn't necessarily know what that object's path was going to be, and therefore it wasn't clear whether they should just wait and see where it ended up or what kind of intelligence intelligence they could gather. Whereas with the balloons, what we have learned is they have a very specific way of being able to track their paths. And so that has made it a lot easier for the U.S. to learn much more about the Chinese surveillance program at large. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you for sharing all of that. Really interesting to understand how they retroactively figured that out. Uh, David, Colonel, Natasha, thank you all for being here. All right, so everybody's talking about artificial intelligence and the amazing things it can do, but can you tell the difference between an essay written by a student, a real student, and one written by ChatGPT? You're gonna have your chance, we'll test you next. A computer program called ChatGPT uses artificial intelligence to help people do just about anything as long as it is text-based. Here's the software writing a five-paragraph essay on the history of the Super Bowl. That's just a computer doing that, and it's coherent. Uh, What are the implications when a computer can do this in the classroom? What if students use this? My next guests are two college professors. Timothy R. Johnson is a professor of political science and law at the University of Minnesota, and Alex Lawrence is an associate professor at Weber State University, and they feel differently 
about ChatGPT. Gentlemen, great to have you. Um, Professor Johnson, I want to start with you. You do not like this idea of students being able to use this to write their essays. Do you think you would be able to determine a paper written by a real student versus the paper written by the computer? Could you suss it out? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me tonight uh, to talk about what I think is an important, very interesting topic. Um, and in fact, yeah, I do think that it is relatively easy, especially in uh, entry level courses um, where knowledge is considered uh, more general, where students don't need to have the depth of knowledge that they might in an advanced course, whether that would be an advanced course in business or in political science or in law. Um, and so while it may be more difficult for me to suss out in a 1000 level course, um, it is uh, relatively easy, I suspect, in uh, a higher level course, um, just because the critical thinking and the depth of the thinking that needs to go into writing a paper um, is so much more important um, and, and needed uh, uh, when those assignments or those papers are given. And, and Professor um, Johnson, have you had this situation yet? Have you, have you had to grade a paper or look at a paper that you thought was chat GPT? You know what I have, um, and it was for an intro level course. Um, and one of uh, uh, one of the teachers uh, with whom I work uh, brought that paper to me. Um, the two of us looked at it, um, and even before running it through plagiarism software um, and running it through um, the the programs that have been created with the same AI technology to detect. Um, an AI written paper, we could tell just by the generalizability, by the factual issues that were that were seemed right, but weren't necessarily accurate. And then things like punctuation um, and grammar not being what you would expect from a college student. So it was relatively easy to, to discern within a couple of minutes. I'm comforted that it has not outpaced that yet. But I mean, obviously, it's headed there. So Professor Lawrence, um, I get the sense that you're from the, if you can't beat them, join them school of thought <laughs> on this. Uh, I, I'd say I'm more from, uh, I'm, I'm not a traditional academic. I come from uh, entrepreneurship and business. And so I'm thinking about this in terms of what I'm seeing out in the real world and what I'm seeing happening for uh, careers and in business and what students are going to be doing. And so I'm thinking about from that perspective, it's, it's my role and my job to teach them and prepare them to use the tools that they're going to see uh, in the real world and in the business world. And it's already happening now. It's going to accelerate quickly. And while uh, Professor Johnson was able to detect that now, um, you know, the AI, by definition, is intelligent and is going to learn. And there's already tools out there that you can take the results from, put them into, have it spun around, change the vocabulary, the diction, the tone, the phrasing, the length. I told GPT to write a paper for me as if it were a freshman in college with a 3.0 grade average and to use the language that that kind of a person would. And that result was much different when I just asked it a generic question. So students know how to game the system. They know how to beat the anti-cheating stuff. It, it's kind of a useless game of cat and mouse, in my opinion. So yeah, if you can't beat them, join them, I guess is one way to say it. That's incredible that you were able to give it such specifics of write the paper as if I'm this actual demographic of a student. But, but Professor Lawrence, um, what practical application is there I mean, why, when would you have your students use it? Yeah, I'm having them use it. I fully embraced it. That's why I'm, I'm on this show. I'm having students use it. I've decided to teach them how to use it and to tell me that they're using it and not just chat GPT, but other AI business tools so we can have open conversations about it so I can show them how to get better at it, how to use it as a tool, as research. And it's not just chat GPT. Pretty soon it's going to be integrated into Google. So are we going to outlaw search engines? You know, it's going to be built into Microsoft Word and Microsoft Excel, and it's just going to be a click, click, click away. So, and these are months away, not years away. 
So, you know, again, I feel like my job is to prepare them for that, to make the best out of it, to help them leverage it, not just to try and figure out if they're hiding it from me. Um, Professor Johnson, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with what Professor Lawrence is arguing. Um, what I do have a problem with is that my job as an educator and, and as an educator for almost 30 years at this point is to teach my students to think critically, to make logical, coherent arguments. And to do that, they need to actually be doing the research they need to be putting in the time. They need to be reading um, the articles or the books that may be cited within an essay. And I actually do uh, think that Professor Lawrence has a good point that there will be practical applications for this. But when I'm trying to prepare students for those those skills, um, the beyond the tangible ones we can think of, and, and the key one, as I said, is critical thinking. I need them to do the work, not a, a, an artificial intelligence program to do so. Understood. I'm old school like that, too. Um, Okay, Professor Lawrence, Professor Johnson, thanks so much for explaining it to us and giving us your various perspectives. Great to talk to you. Joining me now, CNN political analyst Natasha Alford, back with me, Doug High and Harry Anton. Okay, I have a test for you guys. Do you want to take the test to see if you can determine? Sure. Okay, so yes, you'll see if if you can figure out which one is chat GPT or which one is a paper oh, written God. by my 17-year-old daughter. <laughs> She's a senior. This is senior. a no-win situation. Well, oh, no, why? God. You'll be able to figure it out. I mean, maybe you will, maybe you won't be able to figure it out. So this, the, the, um, the question was, um, what is the role of Desdemona in Shakespeare's play Othello? Okay, so here's the first one. And you tell me if you think this is a real 17-year-old senior in high school or if this is ChatGPT. Okay, Desdemona is the incarnation of female purity and innocence. She is young and beautiful as well as the daughter of an affluent and established senator in Venice. So when she professes her unbridled love for Othello, the exotic and older warrior, it is an unpredictable divergence from the script she has been handed by her father in society. Okay, this is writing sample number two. Desdemona is the wife of the titular character Othello in Shakespeare's play. She's a beautiful, virtuous, and obedient woman who is deeply in love with her husband. Despite her goodness, she becomes the victim of Othello's jealousy and suspicion, leading to her tragic death. Desdemona represents the ideal of a faithful and loving wife, and her death highlights the destructive power of jealousy and manipulation. Which one was the real high school senior? The first one. How do you know? I don't know, <laughs> but it's, it sounded more authentic. The other one sounded as if it was trying a little bit harder. Or, again, as AI uses all of these source texts to come up with an answer that it had pulled from other the, source texts. The second one sounded like it had pulled from more right, things. Right, but your, your daughter's brilliant. I'm Thank sure. you. That's, I mean, way, that's the right answer. That's the answer. Right <laughs> answer that. Which one did you think? Uh, I thought the second. The second one was mm-hmm. the, the real person. Yeah. Was, no, it was, was, the, was the, no. The second one was ChatGPT. Right. Okay, which one did you think? That second one seemed to have awfully good grammar. That, I, you know, you, like when I was trying to do this before, you know, like a few weeks ago, it was always, okay, where's the comma? Is the comma in the right place? Are the, are the dependent clauses and the independent clauses lining up? But now as it seems to get, it almost seems like it's getting smarter as we're going along. <laughs> the problem is you automatically overthink it. I, yeah. I'm overthinking it. I'm like, well, you know, it looks really good. So maybe it's not that one and you're trying to yeah. fool me. You know, nothing like a, quite like a test at 11.21 p.m. That's on a right. Friday. That, Friday. I sprung it on you without you, even telling you. I right, know. exactly. It's the so, word obedient that I'm like, yes, oh, obedient. Okay, so that was, let me see. So obedient is in the. Number two. Number two, right. Um, okay, yeah, virtuous and obedient woman. Okay, which one do you... Oh, I thought I was going to get away no, without not. actually answering the question. You know what? I can't go wrong if I join everybody else on this. That's what I feel like. Okay, so I'm, I'm, 
I'm going to go with, with, uh, with our fine panelists on, on the... So number two is ChatGPT. Yes. You're all right. You're all right. Excellent. So the Ooh. first one, and, and I can kind of see it, like the first one does have more personality, mm-hmm. but here's what... Here's what it does. Here's how it did it. Okay, so this oh. is us giving Chat GPT the assignment. And look at, I can tell you, my daughter did not do it that fast. <laughs> she it's did incredible. not do that paper as fast as they just did. I mean, it's so tempting. It's so seductive. How can students not want to use it to cheat, Natasha? And, and I think teachers have to learn how to work with it. I actually do fall along the lines of, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. AI is here. It's already a part of our day-to-day products, services, cars, financial instruments. And so it's no surprise that it would be in schools. I think uh, teachers and professors can create boundaries and guidelines. We use AI or ChatGPT for these particular projects with these parameters, and then other times you're expected to do other things. But I, I think it's too late to kind of, uh, you know, stop the, the flow of Put the Put that genie back in the bottle. I mean, we should mm-hmm. tell everybody you were a teacher, and so you know the challenges Oh, of absolutely. And I think that you can, again, lead into using it. I read one teacher who said they were using ChatGPT to create outlines for students mm. and then asking the students to write the essays. So our students are smart, you know, and as parents, we know this too. They're going to find a way around it. So I think, again, leaning into that because it's, it's here. It's here to stay. You, you said old school earlier, and I immediately thought of getting Rolling Stone and going to the back, and you could, you could send in and get your term paper written for you. So this is just the, techno, you know, the te- technological progression. And we, we've seen this before when we, when we initially see the robots, and they don't scare us, and now we see the robots and we think, we are all doomed as a civilization. Mm-hmm. They're going to take over. This is just another way of doing that. I feel that. I, I would just say this. I know this will sound kind of lame. I think the ultimate question is, are the students going to cheat themselves out of actually learning to put together thoughts on a piece of paper, right? You know, I was someone who struggled greatly with writing essays. It's kind of ironic now that I actually make part of my living writing for a living. I would never have thought that 20 years ago, but I got better at it by working at it, working at it, working at it. And I think that's ultimately the question that I think students will have to ask themselves. And of course, we're going to play this cat and mouse game of whether we can actually figure out which is the paper that was done by artificial intelligence. I'm not sure we'll be able to stay stay ahead of the game that much longer, but I think the question will ultimately be, are we going to really just have to rely on essays being something that's given in classrooms so that we know for a fact that the students are not using some artificial intelligence? Or are the essays really the measure of intelligence? Great right? question. What, how many ways do we have to, um, you know, kind of break the mold? How can we break the mold mm. and think about other ways that shoot, students are showing their skills and their talents? And yes, we but already, I don't want the essay to go the way of the dodo. I don't want it to be the, like uh, the dodo bird. Oh, like, the, yeah, I, yeah. Don't want, <laughs> I don't want us to do away with the essay yeah. just because that is just only one way of showing your smarts. That's true. And if you weren't great at it, you've obviously exceeded in other areas. But I don't. This is very sad. Like, you know how cursive has gone Mm -hmm. away and everything? The idea that you wouldn't be able to write an essay anymore because of this possible chat GPT is just a shame. I don't think it's taking taking it away entirely. But what about speeches? They're telling me I have to go. Oh, Next CNN's presentation (laughs) of HBO's Overtime with Bill Maher. We'll be right back. And now I'm going to turn it over to our friends at HBO. Each week, following Real Time with Bill Maher, Bill and his guests answer viewer questions and bring their unique perspectives to the topics driving the national conversation. We're excited to bring you this lively discussion first every Friday night. So here is Overtime with Bill Maher. 
Okay, we're here on Overtime with Paul Begala, Democratic strategist. Kristen Soltis-Anderson was on our show tonight. And counter-terrorist doctor Malcolm Nance was at the front of the show. Now we're on CNN. I can't believe they're still doing this for this, but I'm glad we're here on CNN. And uh, as I said last week, if you don't watch this, what happens is people write things, you know, I don't even know what these questions are, but I'm going to ask them. This is for you, Malcolm. How much longer will the American public tolerate our involvement in Ukraine? Well, I think they're more than tolerating, and I think they're pretty much four square behind it. Most people aren't. Yeah, they? we're absolutely behind yeah. it. And uh, we're going to tolerate it as long as uh, we can uh, feel that we're upholding the democratic values we established in the world for the rest of the world. I mean, yeah. we'd give up. I mean, did we give up in the Civil War? Did we give up in World War I, World War II? We put up with it. I mean, it's not right. like going to Burger King. No. We gave up in Vietnam. But oh, that, well, there's that one. <laughs> no, we didn't give up, but yeah. we, you know, <laughs> we kind of have slacked off as far as our war. We're a country of good tolerance. Right, all right. Uh, for the panel, does the fact that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is a, does the fact that, this is written badly, that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is a Nepo baby, <laughs> detract from her political accomplishments. I guess they were hearing me talk about the Huckabee dynasty. But yes, that's a big uh, saying these days, Nepo baby. You know what that is? It's like they mostly refer to people in show business as Nepo. Anybody whose mother or father was a star and then you're a star, that, that makes you a Nepo baby. I could name many of them. They're, they're very upset about being called that. My, I've noticed this phenomenon forever, as many people have out here. And I was, it's fine if, you're, if your parents were in show business. Just don't say, as I've heard some of them say, well, it wasn't any easier for me. Yes, it was. <laughs> it was easier for you. Or the other thing they say a lot is, uh, well, it just got me in the door. Well, that's a lot of it in show business, yeah. is getting in the door. Anybody can act. It's not that fucking hard. Oh, <laughs> Sorry, I forgot. forgot. When you're in politics... Sorry, CNN, I I forgot. We're not supposed to... Not on HBO, no. When you're in politics, one of the things that you want, generally, is higher name ID. When a pollster like me goes out and we do a survey, we want to know how many people know what your name is at all. And if you have a dad, or increasingly a mom, that has been in politics before, it does make it easier for voters to just go... I liked her dad. George Bush, so you know. the second, that guy, when he ran, he, he went to the top of the polls. And I remember this story, I think in 1999, the people thought it was his father. That's what they were responding to. He had the same name and they thought, oh, George Bush is running again. Right. He was a one-termer. He could do it. And, and Franklin Roosevelt's cousin, Teddy, was president before him. Sure. John Quincy Adams' dad was president before I mean, there is a tradition of that in America, but you still have to... I, I don't support uh, Governor Sanders. I don't know her. I probably wouldn't even like her. But she earned that job, fair yes. and square. She won the election. By the way, she didn't. we didn't cheat. Nobody cheated. It wasn't rigged. She won the election fair and square. And she's entitled, I think, to the respect that a governor of a state should I noticed have, that right? she, she made a big point of age. She said, yeah. uh, Biden is 80 and I'm 40. By the way, I thought she was 60, but okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I was sho- no, I'm not 60, but I was I was shocked that she was only 40. I mean, Washington has a way of taking a toll on you. Let's just leave it at that. But I mean, that was kind of a strange thing to brag about. I thought. I don't think it's a strange thing to brag about, especially if your core argument going into 2024 is that Joe Biden has passed his prime and we need to do something new. Now, this depends upon does the Republican Party not nominate someone who is also approaching 80? And so that's why some people thought. Don't say depends when you're talking about 80. Something that I thought was very interesting about her response. 
She talked a lot about a new generation of Republican leadership. Mm -hmm. And when she talked about her time working for the former president, she did not use the word Trump once. Yes. And I understand he was pissed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Public schools saw 1.2 million students depart during the pandemic, and many have turned to homeschooling. Are we in the midst of a public education crisis? Yeah, I saw that today in the paper also. A lot of the students who went away during the pandemic never came back. What do you make of that? School is good. Community education, communal education is good because you have to develop social skills. The the hardest part about school is like recess and gym and all the times you have to interact with all those other little 10-year-olds. So I I think it's really important for kids to be back in school. I do, too. But I I mean... Well, it can create a fiscal problem for a school, too. So most schools, the way they get their funding is how many kids are enrolled. If all of a sudden your enrollment falls by 5 or 10%, your funding falls by 5 or 10%. So... The fact that public schools, for so many parents, they said, I don't know if I trust this institution to educate my child anymore. It's also going to potentially make the schools worse or have to do more with less when that student funding is now gone. And, and also, I mean, you say you think kids should be in school. It's the Democratic Party, your party, that is blamed for that not happening during the pandemic. Right, and it happened in Republican states and Democratic states, and they, all those well, leaders were doing the best they could with the science that was available. But it, there were some. Uh, Ezekiel Emanuel, the doctor who was advising well, Biden, was saying at the time, this is going to hurt kids. We should be really careful about closing schools. Uh, and I remember Zeke d- saying that. So it, it's, But I don't want to bang well, on people who were trying to save lives when we lost a million people, that stinking virus. Mm-hmm. We're still losing five, 600 a day. But it was um, it was clear much earlier on than many Democratic leaders in particular. Well, the Republicans uh, they, didn't put them back in school either. They did a, they did yeah. a lot faster. And, and it, that, that's. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the Republicans would say that it was the teachers union, which is very strong and democratically controlled, that made sure that the schools did not reopen. Well, and, the, and, the, and also that you're not it's not the kids who were dying from it. Right. And, it was, and that's the, the big shame well, is that the, the kids who were getting hurt the most by it were the ones whose parents don't have the resources to say, well, the public school's bad, let me take them out and put them in a private school. Or, sure, I can homeschool them, I have the bandwidth to do that. It was poor kids, kids of color, they're the ones who have seen the biggest learning loss as a result of all of this. Malcolm, if the cops who killed Tyree Nichols had been white, would we we be seeing a different response? You know, I'm afraid to say that we would have. I mean, I think that we would have had a slow walk of the indictments, uh, but, you know, the issue here isn't about the color of the policeman. The issue is that the tactics, techniques, procedures, and training of these law enforcement officers on these special teams. Uh, you know, way back when, I went through a SWAT officers course with Capitol Hill Police and some other police forces that were there to learn how to be SWAT cops. The techniques that we were shown back then were not always guns forward, guns all the time. Now the average police officer is, is trained to believe that he's, you know, number one job is to come home at, at night. I agree with that a thousand percent. But there are jobs there. There are things there that are just clearly the, require an intervention that does not require you to draw your weapon. Yeah, I, I mean, this, this, this doesn't, I mean, that's certainly, everything you said is valid. All that is an issue. This seemed to be just five cops who wanted to wail on a guy for yeah. no apparent reason. It, if, if that kid had been white, would they have not done that? No, they wouldn't have, period. We all know that. So five black. I mean, there is a color. There, there is a color issue within law enforcement altogether. Even among black cops. Yeah, because they're cops. 
Because they're cops. This is a mindset, the same way we have in the military. We have a mindset, right? Uh, I think policing now has moved so far away from community service towards self-preservation. Uh, you know, they, they, they go to courses like the on-killing program on how to do self-preservation, how to battle like a, you know, a special forces soldier. What they need to do is they need to start thinking more along the, the old beat cop, you know, protecting the community by knowing the community and not seeing... I don't understand it, right? I'm a big guns guy. Not every black man is the one who has the firearm, right? You, they assume this block is all armed. Maybe that's because some of them are. But I'm going to tell you, there is a large proportion of the, the white population in the United States who routinely carry guns openly, brazenly, oh, yeah. have stickers on their cars, and cops just say, oh, these are the kind of guys that I go to range with. Good job. Right. Uh, can I just, <laughs> Kyle Rittenhouse, for example, right. right? They gave through him water that night. If I had been out on the street with a long rifle like that, they would have been throwing uh, lead down there, freedom bullets at me, right? Okay. Um, for Paul, should, <clears throat> should, Biden, should Biden do the annual pre-Super Bowl interview on Fox? Oh, yes, he, that's a tradition, and Biden is turned it down, or, or as has been done by other presidents. Yeah. Why, did he, why do you think he declined it, that? It, it raises the all-important question, who cares? I'm sorry, he has no obligation to get Fox. I just don't care. I guess I'm always inclined to communicate more, not less. I guess if I were advising him, I'd tell him to do it. But Fox is not entitled to the time of the president of the United States of America. I'm sorry, they're just another corporation trying to make a buck. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kristen, what do you make of Ron DeSantis installing a conservative anti-woke board at the new College of Florida? So he has made a a big name for himself as being someone who is pushing back against what he views as an education system, both K-12 and higher ed, that's gone too far off. I don't know that the answer to liberal overreach in higher ed is conservative overreach in higher ed. So I'm much more interested in, when I'm thinking about higher education in Florida, my home state, is I look at the University of Florida, where Ben Sass was just installed as president. There were some protesters, but not as many on the day of his actual installment. And he has really said, I'm not coming at this with an ideological lens. He is certainly conservative himself, but can he take an institution and actually do interesting things with it that are not about owning the libs or about proving this is what a conservative school is like. This is something that frustrates me about the right is every time they see something on the left that they think they've gone too far, we need to create a conservative version of it. Let's have conservative Wikipedia. Let's have conservative Twitter. It's just, it's always, it's just silly. Why not just try to thrive in these institutions and do what you can to make them work for everyone from within? Perfect sense. I love it. Thank you very much. Thank you, folks. Thank you, CNN. Sorry about it. I went one, word, one week without saying a bad word. And you can watch Real Time with Bill Maher on Friday nights on HBO at 10 p.m. And then watch Overtime right here on CNN Friday nights at 1130. We'll be right back. Rihanna making her highly anticipated return to the stage this weekend. She will perform during the Super Bowl halftime show, and it will be her first time on stage in seven years. Last night, Rihanna talked about how she's preparing. I've been so focused on the Super Bowl, I totally forgot that my birthday is coming up. I totally forgot about Valentine's Day. (laughs) I am just like Super Bowl, Super Bowl, Super Bowl. So it's a lot of preparation a lot of moving parts and this week this is the week that 
it, it, it really is being tested. I mean, it's literally like three to 400 people breaking the stage down and building it back up and getting it out in eight minutes. It's incredible. It's almost impossible. Back with me now, Natasha Alford. Are you excited about Rihanna? Oh, beyond excited. I'm part of the Navy, you know, the Rihanna Navy. So we've been waiting. It's been seven years. I was so stunned to learn that. Mm -hmm. Why has she been out of the picture for seven years? Because she's a boss woman. She launched Fenty. We know that, you know, her beauty line, her lingerie line has made her a billionaire. So I could understand why, you know, if you're off making a billion, maybe you're a little bit too busy to make some music. But we are going to hear classics, and I'm very excited about it. She also made a baby. Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> that too. I-, I think it's inspiring, actually. I think that there's a lot of pressure when, you know, I- I'm-, I'm a relatively new mom, and I remember feeling this pressure to get back to work. But Rihanna talked about this being a moment for representation, that she's doing this to show what is possible uh, for black women, for immigrants. She's very proud to be from Barbados. And so this is this is her moment to kind of bring her whole career journey together. She also said something very cool about that. She's three months postpartum, she said. But when you become a mom, there's something that just happens where you feel like you could take on the world. You can do anything. So that's why she chose to do it. It's I, I could understand that. You know, it, it, this is part of her legacy kind of coming together, right? You've got the, the businesses lining up, incredible music, and now this is the moment that every artist wants, that Super Bowl moment. So she was saying that she was doing it for her son, too, which is a great example, right? Just because you become a mom doesn't mean that all of a sudden life stops and she's showing that it moves forward. Yeah, no, I agree. Having so, There's something about having an infant that does put everything else in perspective. Mm-hmm. And you do feel like, okay, yeah, what do you want me to do? Where am Where should I stand? All right, I'll do the Super Bowl. You show up, you show up (laughs) for the moment. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so what were some of your favorite halftime shows? Bruno Mars. Okay, Bruno Mars, that was in 2014. Yeah, and I I love that because it was unexpected, right? I can't say I was like a Bruno Mars fan, but he shut it down. The dancing, the singing... Beyonce, of course. Of course. She's the queen. Lady Gaga, when she caught that, the football. football. She caught the football and then she jumped off of something. She's so little. (laughs) She was so little, but it was such a moment, right? She gives us drama. She gives us theater. We love it. So Lady Gaga is a top for me. Totally agree. I thought the Lady Gaga thing was incredible just because she was dancing. She was singing. She was catching a football. She was, I mean, she was jumping off things. Like I would have dropped that football. I mean, of course I can dance and sing like her, but I would have dropped the football. I think these days we appreciate talent more and more. True talent. And if you you got it, it's going to show on that Super Bowl stage. Um, where are you on the weekend? Did you like it or didn't you? <laughs> it was it was interesting. I, I love the weekend's music. I had no problem Me with too. it. Um, it was, again, interpretive. If, if you like the art of it, then you would have enjoyed it. No, I just, I, I, I loved it. Um, but I agree with you. Beyonce was great. And Madonna, 2012, was great. Yeah. She's yeah. a legend. She is. All right, Natasha, thanks so much for spending Friday night with me here. Have a great weekend. Thanks, you too. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll be right back. The devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria this week has claimed more than 23,000 lives. But rescuers are not giving up. They're still finding survivors in the rubble. A 16-year-old boy was pulled tonight from under a collapsed building in Turkey. His name is Camille, and officials say he had been trapped for 119 hours. They say that Camille was smiling as they pulled him to safety, and miraculously, he appears to be in okay condition. Another young man in Turkey was rescued just a few hours earlier. His name is Mohammed. He's 20 years old and was clearly alert 
as rescuers put him on a stretcher. He managed to stay alive for five days under that rubble. For more information about how you can help victims of the earthquake, you can go to CNN.com forward slash impact. Thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.